0: corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Gaia.
1: So everybody's here again, as usual. Appreciate those that keep coming back day after day. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining us for the hour here is Anne Barry, who has been getting some really good media attention as of late, has a hell of a pedigree and background. And I think this will be an interesting conversation just to help people think differently about the unknowable tomorrow. And for those who are not familiar with who you are, introduce yourself to the audience. What have you done? What are you doing now? And why should people pay attention to you?
2: All the good existential questions. I love it, Michael. What a lead in. And I think just the other thing we should probably say, it's always boring to get the disclosures out, but none of this is investment advice. Just throw it out there as well. Lots of opinion, lots of good debate. So my background, folks, is sort of diverse. I was on traditional Wall Street for over 15 years. I'm still very much there. I worked at Goldman Sachs as a banker doing mergers and acquisitions first in London. And then I moved over to the private equity side of the house. Buying, owning and controlling large companies and continue to do that with a quick interlude at business school here in the US, which brought me to New York where I'm based now, but spent over 12 years at Goldman in total and bought a ton of businesses in the industrial sectors, the energy sectors, the consumer sectors served on their boards, did a lot with structuring capital tables, placing debt on large companies and taking them public, selling them to big strategic. So all the elements of investing in the private domain. I've also been a public market junkie and so really have been following markets both from a private lens, fundamental analysis of businesses investing rather than trading. I started a private equity fund at the beginning of 2017, which has got about $6 billion of assets under management now. So I left Goldman to go do that. And then along the way... Also became the CEO of one of that fund's biggest investments. So I ran a hospitality company. I moved out to Vegas where it was headquartered. I had 6,000 employees, 32 industrial locations and ran that company through the crisis, which was a real learning experience as I watched 90% of my customers shut down, got the company to survive, position it to thrive in the aftermath. And then after all of that, I left and at the beginning of 2021 joined a media company that had been co-founded by Jimmy Kimmel to lead tech and consumer investing in high growth businesses and looking at ways to help them grow with their content strategies. Now, fast forward to June of 2022, and I am running my own shop called Thread Needle Ventures. I'm investing in tech companies, consumer businesses. I'm continuing to invest in the public markets. I'm on the board of A-Rod SPAC, so I do a lot with athletes. I'm still advising Cornell Capital, my last private equity fund, and working with a lot of public and private companies to help them grow and thrive in these crazy markets we're seeing right now. So, Michael, that was a long that was a long lead in, but there's there's a lot that I've covered and touched over the years.
1: No, no, that's good. Okay, so uh, prior to me joining an RIA in 2011, I had worked with a family office that was based mm. out in in Geneva, and yeah. the, they had two billion dollars in assets, and they had a, a public equity arm, right, where people would be trading almost like a prop firm in that sense, and then they had a pretty large private equity side as well putting the family capital to work in different ventures. And I'll never forget one of the reasons why the the patriarch of the family was such a big fan of private equity was because he didn't have to have the anxiety of seeing prices daily. Yeah. Right. Versus public yeah. markets. I want you to talk about the interaction of private to public because valuations for privates are based on public valuations. But there's maybe a distinction in terms of not just the, only the types of investors, but the Longevity because of that lack lack of daily price data.
2: That's exactly right. And just to put it in context a little bit, Michael, and since you you're in the RIA world, you'll you'll understand this. When we talk about private equity and private markets, there are lots of different kinds of asset classes within that. And I think it's just useful to break down a little bit what those differences are. The sexy, glamorous end of private equity or private capital is venture capital, investing in young companies, startups, or businesses that are sort of under 10 years old for the most part, who are raising rounds of capital in series, So, meaning every X years or months, these companies are going back out to big venture firms or family offices like the ones that Michael described to raise capital over and over again. That's at the riskier end of the spectrum. On the opposite end, you've got buyouts, which is where I spent a big chunk of my career. And this is buying mature businesses with a lot of profitability, with great free cash flow, with a lot of EBITDA, the proxy to cash flow and an, an indicator of profitability, where there's the ability for these companies to take on quite a lot of debt. And it helps the buyout firms, the big ones you've heard of, Blackstones, the Apollos, the TGS, can then essentially put down a positive on that company The way same way you buy a house or an apartment, you put a deposit down and then you effectively take out a mortgage or debt to consummate the transaction. At the other end of that spectrum, which is LBOs and private equity, we're looking at usually pretty de-risk businesses. And the funds there are looking to return double their investors' money over sort of a five to seven year period. So very, very attractive. The point, Michael, you just raised is in that journey, whether it's the early stage venture capital or whether it's on the buyout end, these mature businesses, What you do as the money manager, which I've been for a long time, is you look at what the valuations of these companies are on a quarterly basis, not on a daily basis, on a quarterly basis. And in order to try to decide what the appropriate valuation is, you absolutely look at the public markets. What are the comparable peers, which are the business in the public domain that most closely replicate this private company you own? That's one way you look at the multiples they're trading at, you look at what the yields are that are being produced in the public sector. But what you also do a lot more of is a multi-year free cash flow analysis with often a very detailed and granular buildup of what you believe this business is going to generate over a five-year period. And by the way, you do it with huge amounts of information because you own and control this company. You have perfect insight in terms of what data this business can can, can generate to help you make that judgment. And so, you're, you're not only not having to deal with looking at marks to market every day, you're actually doing quarterly portfolio analysis using unbelievable amounts of information that would never be available to you if you're investing in a public portfolio. So, much less of a roller coaster. There does tend to be a lag behind the public markets. We can talk about incentives that means that the lag typically is bigger and longer than you might expect. But Overall, it's emotionally a lot sounder place to have found Michael than dealing with public market portfolios.
1: No, and that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned the the early stage, the so the mature, late stage businesses. The kind yeah. of different different ways to look at private equity. From your experience, are there? Do you tend to see sort of ex- excessive valuations, or maybe sort of extreme, or maybe the size of a bubble, so to speak, based on? From the VC side first versus the late stage. Mm. Where where is speculation most first, where does it first develop within the private equity space?
2: I do find it's in that earlier stage venture capital backspace. And there's a really specific reason why. Some of it is just the nature of the industry. Some of it I think is a little more onerous. So let's imagine for a second that, and I'm going to pick on some of the listeners here. I, I can see uh, is someone I can see in the list of listeners right here. Let's suppose he decides to found a business with another listener I can see here, and they Decide to start a dating app by making this up. And they decide to go and raise some seed capital. Let's say they go raise $2 million. They take that $2 million, they start to build the business, and then they decide to raise a Series A, that first step towards having proven that their product works, to looking to scale it and roll it out more broadly. So let's say they go to Andreessen, one of the big VC firms, or they go to Sequoia, or they go to Lightspeed, and then they go raise their Series A. And let's say that that capital lasts 18 to 24 months. They don't need to raise more cash. And then at the end of that 18 to 24-month period, then raise their Series B. They need more capital. They then need to decide well, which VC do they go to. They may end up going back to the same people who back their Series A. They may end up going to a completely different set of investors. And what tends to happen, I have found, Michael, is that certain companies get a lot of buzz around them. This investing universe is very big in the sense you've got lots of different startups and lots of sources of capital, which we should come back to. But the really big headline blue chip VCs is actually a relatively small subsector of those investors and capital providers. And what happens is certain names, certain startups get to be known as very hot there tends to be FOMO, there tends to be a race by a lot of others to say, oh, look, Tiger's going in or Andreessen's going in. I want to get a piece of that too. And that tends to drive up valuations. And then what you also have seen a lot of over the last 24 months is a VC firm may raise a second fund different from the original one that made the first investment and will want to invest and often, you know, they'll, they're going to want to see a return on their first investment. And so you do see a little bit of what I call grade inflation. It's a tricky one. You see that dynamic a lot more in early stage venture because in the mature business of buyout, you do not have these multiple capital raises. You tend to be one and done. You don't have this motivation to go and raise out at bigger and bigger valuations. And you don't have the opportunity to do it when you're a more mature business either.
0: Yeah, and it's it's,
1: it's so it's, it's interesting, right? Because the implication there is that valuations get excessive because people are not chasing the idea behind the company, but rather the clout of the investors that are investing in the company. Right?
2: Often, yeah, often, not always, but often. And I think we saw that a lot, in particular. In this, in this latest cycle of big tech valuations. I think we've seen, I'll th- I tell you where I think we saw that, Michael. I think we absolutely saw that in places like grocery delivery. I think we saw it in fintech. And I think this is, the, I don't think it's an accident that those are the places we've seen some of the biggest markdowns in Instacart, in Klarna, in others.
1: So what, what's remarkable to me, so, so it's, it's interesting we have this conversation because I'm almost done with, I don't know if, if you may have seen or caught it, but on Hulu there's a kind of a series called We Crashed, which is based on yeah. WeWork. Right? Yeah. and and I'll, it's actually for anybody that's listening, it's actually I think a fairly well done series. Whether or not it's accurate, you never really know because a lot of this is dramatized, obviously. But but you know, you see these these the, in the history of rework these constant up to valuations and these constant constant chase for more and more capital to fund these 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 properties. But you never really get to any situation where there's any clear any clear viable path towards putting profit. Any kind of EBITDA, yeah. right, to the point where WeWork itself was basically creating its own definition of what EBITDA would be so that when <laughs> they would go public, right, they would have some kind of explanation for why they couldn't make money. But but why is it – but it is interesting to me because you think that these stewards of capital on the private equity side, they're not going to be, as you would think, as emotional as chartists, right, or traders when it comes to public markets. But it seems that they get caught up in the FOMO no different than anybody else and don't necessarily question fundamentals, maybe to the extent that you might hope they would.
2: That is such a controversial and interesting comment, Michael. And let let me give you a little anecdote that illuminates how I think differently about the training that comes in the mature buyout private equity world and then the training that you get as a young professional looking to go into the venture space. About this time last year, I was looking to build out my, my venture and early stage growth team at my last employer. And the way I would try and find a team is I would go through my network and ask for recommendations for young people who had some grounding in finance. They'd done a banking program or an accounting program. So they had some exposure to the world evaluation. And then I would provide a case study. So a deck of a young company with some financials. And ask the candidates that I was interviewing to just write up a very simple one or two sheet talking about how they thought about valuing that business. And Michael, I cannot tell you how many of these candidates, really bright, really smart, often had been trained in venture capital already, came back to me. And the only way they would value these businesses, Michael, was on what was their latest revenue number, annualize it and then apply a multiple of somewhere between four and 10 times revenue to get to the valuation. There was no fundamental analysis. There was no look at what the, you know, the unit economics were and how that could translate into profit over time. There was no sort of view onto whether free cash flow might be something that's important. I contrasted that with candidates who came out of dealing with more mature businesses. And for them, the challenge was more being able to have a little bit of a risk appetite and say, OK, we don't have perfect info because this is a young company, but here's what the art of the possible and the vision could be, but they were much more focused on fundamental analysis, what are the unit economics, what is the cash profile, and much less focused on just how the comps were trading. And the reason I found this fascinating, Michael, is it gave me just a really small little anecdotal insight into how bubbles happen. because when you've got everyone in an industry looking at valuing things on a comparable company basis pegged to public companies for the most part, and you don't have people looking at fundamentals. To your point, even people who are dispassionate investors or should be, are using tools that are innately flawed when you get bubblish type markets like the ones that we've just seen. Which is really fascinating.
1: Right. And the and the real poster child equivalent of, of that when it comes to public markets is, is ARC, right? And and the Kathy Wood mm. type of stocks. And mm. and I don't want to go into a sort of a discussion around Kathy Wood and ARC, but sure. just using that from a from a discussion standpoint you've had and you you looked at this idea that there's been severe markdowns in a lot of these you know hyper growth you know story type of companies, and you've seen a lot of that with these these public equities as well and I've argued yeah. for a while that that's been a process that's been ongoing for well over a year since february of of twenty twenty one I want to relate that to the name of the space, okay, which is what if the bear market is over? You said that and I've seen a lot of research on this as well that private equity tends to lag public markets public markets have utterly Beneath the surface, collapsed in the most private equity-like type of things. Going back to Arc, and it seems like, believe it or not, Arc may have found some kind of a bottom. Whether or not it trends higher or not is irrelevant. At least it seems like the the bleeding has stopped there. When you look at the private equity space, when you look at some of those areas that have been marked down, do you think that broadly speaking, in the tech space, there's been enough of a markdown where there can be a degree of comfort that the bloodletting is over?
2: It's interesting, Michael, I'm just going to come back to this definition of private equity. We're really talking about, and let's just, and I, I agree with you, we won't kick the tires too much on ARK, but ARK, the underlying thematic of ARC has been much more the venture capitalist type, correct, big correct. ideas, blue sky. So I, I'd keep that separate from you know, big industrials companies or big healthcare companies that other kinds of private equity touch. So if we look at, I call them the most glamorous tech growth landscape. Yes, we've seen these big come downs in valuation. I personally don't think we are through the bear market yet. I don't believe that we have seen the bottom on some of these names. Now, I, I want to come back to what I do personally because I think that's really why people listen and, and want to share ideas together. I don't get FOMO about missing the bottom and buying a stock at its absolute cheapest point. I just don't. And that comes back to this idea of being a dispassionate investor. I do care about trying to find themes that are going to prove out as sustaining themselves through recessions, through volatility, so I can look back with that three to seven year horizon. At least I've been trained in, which is much more a private market horizon than a public market trading horizon. And I want to be able to look back five years from now and say, okay, did I pick stocks that reflected themes that ultimately could sustain themselves over a longer period? And I actually think, Michael, that there are some stocks out there. That haven't bottomed yet because we haven't seen enough information to highlight their fragility. And I'll give you examples of that. There were a number of businesses that were direct to consumer models. And I don't want to pick on names because I do think these are fundamentally fantastic founders. But I'll take names like Rent the Runway, which is the apparel rental business, or businesses like Warby Parker which is a direct-to-consumer eyewear business. And by the way, I think both founders of those, business, both of whom I know are phenomenal leaders and phenomenal founders and business builders. The challenge with those, Michael, at least as I see it, is a lot of the traffic that translates into purchases by consumers on those models still remains digital marketing. And we just haven't seen yet the impact that slower consumer confidence That as those businesses start to see their cash reserves come down when it's unclear whether they can raise more capital, when we start watching them as a result slashing their marketing budgets, I don't think yet we've seen the full impact of what's going to happen to companies like those. And so when I talk about do I think, you know, the bear market's over or where are we in the bear market, I don't think we know yet for some of the more recent IPOs that we saw over the last 24 months because those are not businesses that, A, have a track record of living through down cycles. We don't know how good the management teams are at managing through a recessionary environment. And we also don't know what they look like in a world which is now increasingly cluttered in the digital space and where cheap digital marketing has been the engines of growth for those businesses. I think as a two headwinds, it's gonna be really tough.
1: Right. And and the challenge here on your point your point about, you know, having these companies see 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 how they would have performed in down cycles. You haven't really had that many down cycles because no. the Fed has come in so quickly. So any anybody any company that has any kind of experience with a real down cycle arguably is probably already mature because they've been around long enough, which was the last time we saw some right, kind of Since a real before two thousand and eight.
2: Since right, before exactly 2008 Right, right. So, so you're talking
1: about slim pickings, right? In slim, terms of trying to find those right? Slim pickings, and
2: even better, the ones who lived through both through both 2001, 2002, and 2008. So examples of people who did live through those cycles are Amazon, right? Who are sophisticated who have lived through. Google's another one, but you know a lot of these recently IPO'd businesses, we have no idea whether they've got the chops to survive this, this cycle. We just don't.
1: But there are always going to be, to your point about themes, there are always going to be industries that, no matter what, are are, are non cyclical or. or counter-cyclical, right? right? Healthcare would be an example there. But but what are some of the themes that in this kind of environment get your attention if we assume that we're in a multi-year period of, of a difficult environment?
2: You know, one that is fascinating to me, and the jury's really out on this, is the music industry. And I'd, I would love to, oh, can we see shows of hands on this, Michael? I'd love to see if how many of the team listening right now have interest in or exposure to the music sector. This is a place that I've invested in on the private side and specifically around events. I invested in a fantastic business called TVG Hospitality, which was co-founded by one of the Mumford & Sons, Ben Lovett. And he's built this brilliant team, Exoho House, that's really focused on curating great music venues in the US and the UK, making sure there's great food, there's great acts, and there's a real community around it. As another business I'm backing called Breakaway, which is electronic dance music festivals catering to the college crowd and where they're really gathering data on their demographic and have got really interesting ideas, how to take those insights and build lots of different revenue streams centered around music and the fact that this is a pretty tech-savvy community. The reason I like those businesses, Michael, is for a long time now, I've been a big believer in experiential. As much as I'm a believer in continued digital take-up, in Gen Z and younger driving societal change and the adoption of technology, I've also believed the counterbalance for that is that human beings want and need In person experiences. And I've always believed that community in music is a place where we would see that manifest itself. And so I actually, a little early, I'll admit, I've had some pain on this, but I'm looking at bringing my average entry price down. I looked at Warner Music when it spun out. And the one that I really like, but it's a global stock, folks. If you, if you, if you follow these is Universal Music Group. For a couple of reasons, if you look back in history to this point on proven business models, music, consumption, whether in live events or whether through digital consumption, has tended to hold up pretty well in recessionary environments. So a lot of the outlook now through 2030 is about a 9% CAGR, a compound annual growth rate, even now with the recession on the horizon through 2030, coming from all the many different revenue streams that music has available to it. About double that is expected to come from streaming. Streaming and music is underpenetrated relative to video. So yes, Netflix is struggling. Yes, we've seen Disney uh, Plus wrestle with its uh, subscriber uptake. We've seen the CNN Pluses get shut down. But music in general isn't quite there yet, particularly in emerging markets in terms of streaming as a method of distribution for for music catalogs. The other thing that music is seeing is a pretty early innings on using social media as a way to break new tracks and as a way for artists to get their music out there and get more revenue streams as royalties get paid. And What's interesting to me, and Michael, it sounds like you have some experience with this. I love seeing themes in private markets where you've got a set of investors with, again, a lot more information than you get as a public market investor, and then trying to see if those themes can exist in the public market. And Smart Private Equity Money, Apollo, KKR, others, has been running after music catalogs for the last sort of five years or so, realizing that these new distribution channels to help monetize those rights and those record libraries out there and also seeing that these are actually pretty stable, more so in a low rate environment. This is a changing environment for it. So now I look at where these music stocks are trading. And it seems to me a pretty interesting place to try and try and play that theme. So that's one that I've got cooking, still working on it. But that's what I've been talking about a lot lately.
1: No, I, I like it as a musician myself, although, as you know, the challenge with any content producer is it's very Winner take all. So, to the extent that music or video content, what that has in common with, with, you know, any other kind of major tech type of play is that, you know, the, the most of the, of the rev, most of the profit accrues to just a select number of, of the creators. Right. And I guess the question becomes, how do you, how do you monetize, you know, so that the vast majority that are struggling are able to not only have the incentive to want to keep producing content, but Actually, monetize in a better way than the old model of you know record labels, so to speak.
2: Right, and that's the wish list of the future. It absolutely, is. so when we all want that, we all, you know these overused terms they drive me crazy. Democratizing access, the most overused term I think we saw in the last two years. Creator economy, another hugely overused and I think often misapplied statement. I do think those trends are coming, and I'm glad they're coming, that idea that you get more of the money in the pockets of the creators. But for the moment and for the foreseeable future, a lot of the money, Michael, is still landing back in the pockets of the IP holders, who, by the way, are the music labels. And that's why I come back to the universal musics of the world, the Warner musics of the world, because the other thing that these big companies are doing, Sony's another one, is investing really heavily In building out tech partnerships, for example, Warner with Roblox to try and get web three concerts going and into gaming. They're investing super heavily into merchandising. And for those creators and artists who are driving, you know, the most ears to their content. The labels are also leaning in to try to help build broader brands around that talent to make sure that they're getting movies made about it. Was really interesting, Michael. If you saw what the making of the movie Bohemian Rhapsody did for Queen's music sales, it's unbelievable or, you know, the movie that was done on Elton John. And I'd love to see what this movie on Elvis does for, you know, royalties that are getting paid to the to the Elvis library. So there's lots of different ways now to try and create different kinds of content around music. I just still think the money sits with a lot of the traditional players.
1: How much of that experiential, you know, vision, let's call it what you want to call it, right? Yeah. That kind of focus on it. How much of that is driven purely by cheap credit, right? Because it's easy to to want to make a case for the metaverse when the cost of capital is zero. But as the cost of capital keeps on rising, well, then maybe it becomes a choice of, well, do I want to experience something with this headset or do I want to right. uh, pay for food because it's much more expensive, right? right. It, talk, talk about that interactive because I, I haven't heard anybody really talk about sort of how this focus on the metaverse and and Web3, how changing uh, average cost of capital might slow down or maybe even reverse some of the, the trends there. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report/leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion.
2: Yeah, we've seen it, right? We've seen it embedded in the performance of Meta. And we've seen it embedded in the performance of something I went into I think it was early last year, I put money into Roblox. And I, I put money into Roblox. And by the way, I've been crushed, just so everyone knows. I'd be the first to admit when I felt the pain on these. I put money into Roblox So I looked at that business and said, oh, wow, this is the gaming destination for, you know, kids call it in the 11 plus generation. And it's becoming a hot destination for Web3 innovators, like in the music industry. Little Nas had a concert there because those who want to try and penetrate the Web3 world want to start with a young audience who are going to grow up with it, where the adoption is going to be the highest. And and it really crashed, Michael. And part of it is because in this rising rate environment – two things happen. Number one, people want a flight to quality. And this is a young business, which isn't yet fully proven as a public company. And number two, to go back to one of the questions you raised at the beginning, which is how do you value these glamorous high growth in theory tech businesses? But high growth, we always talk about in terms of revenue for the sector, and it's not the right thing to focus on. It's like, when do these businesses ultimately become profitable and generate cash that at some point finds its way back to their investors, the shareholders, i.e. you guys, because dividends are going to come or buybacks are going to come down the line. When the rate environment is rising, what happens is, as you sit for any company... Irrespective of sector, and try and project out their profits. What you then do to figure out what is the hypothetical value of that future profit stream today, you discount those back. It's called the time value of money concept using an interest rate, the risk free rate. And as that risk free rate goes up, as is happening now, because the Fed is moving rates up, the present value of that future profitability drops. And as a result, stocks drop. And as a result, private market company valuations drop. So I think it's a pretty tried and true relationship, Michael, which is as rates continue to go up, these businesses where the path of profitability is less clear, they're going to continue to be challenged stocks for a while. What you've just asked is a different layer to that, an adds layer to that, which I think is fascinating, which is I think for any content business, whether it's Web3, or whether it's your cable box, or whether it's your Netflix subscription, or whether it's your Spotify subscription, as inflation goes up, is the consumer going to drop 15 bucks a month on their content subscription? Or are they going to say, oh, I just can't do that because I can't fill my gas tank the way that I need to as cheaply as I used to be able to? And that's a trade-off I've got to make. Now, I think some of the this is where earnings season, which is kicking off in earnest right now, is going to be so critical because I think this is where you've got Netflix is reporting tomorrow. We need to see what they say. You know, Disney, ESPN is putting up prices. There are content and digital platforms openly saying because of inflation, we're putting up our prices. We don't yet know the full effect of that on losing subscribers and attrition, but that's what this earnings season is going to be so important to try and suss out.
1: Right, I guess maybe kind of taking more broadly, I guess the the point is that when you're in a inflationary cycle, the choices, your budget is going to be more dependent upon how much you want to spend towards entertainment than not. Right? I mean, that's I think kind of the the, the way I would. Frame it. I saw some headline on CNBC earlier asking the question: Is Netflix recession proof? Right, right. And and I think that's kind of where that gets into because you tend to pull back on anything experiential, entertainment wise, when you're feeling the pinch from a slower economy and higher inflation. And presumably, that will then mean that you're still going to have some some real markdowns on the speculative side of the VC end of things, where. There are some great ideas and some very charismatic founders, but they can't necessarily counter one's spending power.
2: And I think it's actually really interesting because I think one thing that we did learn through the pandemic, Michael, is that consumer patterns of behavior are not always predictable. And they're very much a function of what the alternative options are that are available at a point in time. So let, let me ask you a question back. So as inflation goes up and let's say going to the movies gets that much more expensive. The ticket gets more expensive. The popcorn gets more expensive. The driving gets more expensive. The parking gets more expensive. Or your cost of dining out with friends continues to go up because we're seeing massive wage inflation still in restaurants and input costs going up. Question back to you, Michael. Do you choose to go out for dinner and a movie with your friends and cancel your Netflix subscription to do it? Or do you keep your Netflix subscription because dinner and a movie is very expensive and you can maybe only afford it once that month versus the same amount of money on Netflix is going to keep you with good content six months
1: yeah and and the nuance there is that it depends on my starting level of credit card debt
2: right hundred percent a hundred
1: percent yeah, which is always the dilemma right yeah. because you know but people I think people do seem to forget that income is very different than their credit line,
2: yeah, for sure, and you know just on the subject of tech in that topic, I am really wanting to see this earning season a little bit more insight into how the buy now, pay later movement, the affirms, the afterpays, the Klaners, PayPal's version of it, soon Amazon and Apple Pay's version of it. We always talk about consumer credit in terms of mortgage rates, student loan rates, auto loan rates, credit card rates. I, I really want to see this conversation now around how much consumer debt is sitting out there on these buy now, pay later platforms and how, how yeah. much defaults are there.
1: Let, let's talk about that because that, that's yeah. an interesting discussion. Because you know, if, if th- there's an argument to be made that the the sort of buy now pay later was first really seen in the American system in the 1920s, and that created a credit explosion, which also led to the Great Depression. There's there's a lot of interesting analysis on that. And buy now pay later is not necessarily a new phenomenon, but the integration with tech is. Let's talk about if if that's maybe a maybe an interesting systemic risk because I I'm gonna assume that when it comes to buy now, pay later, that they have all kinds of algorithms and regressions that basically perfectly model out the chance of default, you know, from somebody not paying because of the buy now, pay later type of scheme. But that makes me worried because if if you have whole business models based on historical data, default rates rates, things like yeah. that. That sounds like also what got us into trouble with the housing crisis in '06.
2: It's. It, I think that's right. I think. I think where this is different is I don't think there's the same level of systemic risk as we saw in, in the housing crisis in 07. when it not started to Not at this point, right? But I and, and also I think the order of magnitude is different because as as large as the take up of BNPL has been, it's not at the same scale yet as as a housing crisis. But the point you make makes a good one, and the. the thing that I don't yet have my mind around, but I'd love to get people's perspective on this, is how much is an individual consumer's buy now pay later debt reported to or not to the credit report businesses? That's that exactly what I'm thinking, right. right? Right, how much you can then take out for a mortgage. So is there this basic is this, this this pool of debt that's not being sized for any one individual consumer that is leading them to over lever in from more traditional sources of capital. I don't know the answer to that, but I do want to know because I do think it was interesting, Bank of America, I think, said today in their earnings report they think the consumer is still pretty healthy. That being said, something like one in three Americans are having to start to make choices around where they start delaying or thinking about having to default on debt payments. And that whole interplay, I don't think we understand it yet, Michael, and I that's where I would like to understand that better.
1: Yeah, no, that's fascinating, because that's that's you know hidden leverage is often where you get into trouble. Right. Right. So you're right. exactly Right. I think that that lack of visibility is really, really interesting. And, and is there and I just don't know the mechanics of this, but is, is there is there talk of some kind of regulation to maybe somehow respond to this, this broader movement? Because the thing is, when these things take off, they tend to take off exponentially and the regulators tend to be very lagged in responding to it. And then by the time they responded to it, you know, the crisis has already taken place.
2: I remember there was a lot of chatter earlier this year, perhaps at the end of last year. In the government wanting to understand, do you remember this, wanting to understand by an appellator and summoning the CEO's business to talk about it and what are the risks to consumers? And then I haven't really seen much headline coverage. You know, there have been, you know, big global issues going on, but I haven't seen that continue to pick up. What I did read is that Equifax and some of the other and um, Experian have been planning to add this information to regular credit reports. But it's just still not clear at this point. So definitely something I'm tracking. You know, the beauty of BNPL, to your point, Michael, is the concept that goes back to the 1920s, like store credit. It does help folks who aren't able to access traditional credit to start to do so. And ultimately, if the data can get tracked, start to build their own credit history. So I can see the benefits there to support underbanked and undercapitalized sectors of society. But in an aggregate, aggregate basis, I'm not sure that we're fully there yet, but it's changing.
3: We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now.
1: Let me uh, reset the room for the remaining 20 minutes so. First of all, everyone, make sure you follow Ann Barry here on Twitter and check out what she's doing with the Threadneedle Ventures. My name is Michael Guy, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Again, joining for the remaining 20 minutes, Ann Barry.
2: Michael, do you want me to jump in there or do you want to?
1: Yeah, no, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I will say, real quick, it, it goes, I keep going back to this, the we crash because it's like, you know, we we invest to grow. We invest to grow until until it's like at some point you got to get paid, right, for, yeah. for the growth.
2: Yeah. And look, I think there are companies now, and I will come back to learn economic specific question because I want to make sure we do address streaming. But perspectives do change, right? So let's take Uber as an example. Uber was given... Tons of patience. Amazon was given endless patience by the market to kick the can on profitability and just focus on headline numbers and headline growth. And you know, literally decades in the case of Amazon of patience under Bezos, and then Uber with its constant rollout of different product adjacencies, whether it was on the on the delivery side or whether it was on the third party logistics side or trucking side. So. What I think we're seeing is at some point patience does run out. Now we saw Uber come out very public, publicly say now it's all about profitability and proving that we're profitable. Amazon's come out and said you know now it's all about proving that we can make money across our business lines. So to to take those examples in transportation and in e-commerce and address learn economics, your very good question specifically. I do think there is a window in which the market will say okay we've got Netflix we've got we've got we've got others that have proven that there is hunger and thirst and demand for streaming content are we at the point now where these companies need to show us the money and I don't think they're there with quite such brutal focus, learn economics yet as some of the other businesses. And I say that, Michael, for a couple of reasons. Subscription businesses are still very attractive. People like subscription businesses. It shows stickiness. It shows that there's a recurring revenue stream. It means that you are you know, not beholden to one-time sales. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, on a fundamentals basis, to go back to the, the premise of how we want to invest, that is always very, very attractive. And then also, when you look at the cash position of some of these streamers, so if you take a look right now at Netflix, and I'm just going to break down the numbers, I just take the 2021 numbers, for example, 392 and change million dollars of operating cash flow. And then you know $1.3 billion of investments are usually coming out of capex There's an accounting thing to watch here, which is to say profitability and cash expenditures are not always directly correlated. And economics has put his finger on the pulse, which is there's a disconnect between profitability and how much cash generation this business is actually making. But for streaming and for something like Netflix in particular, here's where I think there is still opportunity. Netflix has not yet done what Disney has done. Netflix does have some merchandising relationships that started to go into gaming. But Netflix hasn't, I don't think yet, maximized the potential to take some of its winning intellectual property and winning content and blow it out of the water. So I'll give you an example. I don't know if anyone watched... Michael, did you watch Squid Games?
1: I did, yes. Yep.
2: And and what were the numbers that came out that they estimated that the Squid Games franchise was worth just under a billion dollars? Do you yeah, remember seeing absurd, those headlines? I right, think right. it was 980 million bucks. Yep. It, didn't, it didn't cost a billion to make that franchise. It cost a fraction of that. And so if Netflix can continue to double down on producing content at a fraction of the ultimate value of the content... The ultimate value of the content defined is what are the other ways that you go make money off it beyond just charging your subscription fee, meaning theme parks, meaning merchandise, meaning gaming extensions, meaning podcast extensions, meaning experiential pop-ups, you know, whatever it may be, then I think that streaming becomes shorthand for something much bigger, which is the interplay of digital and other ways of, of, of monetizing and other revenue streams. And I think the winners, like the Disney has been for a very, very long time at this model, actually haven't, haven't yet maximized this opportunity. What I'm saying is that there's an evolution and that the model, which isn't just about content, the model of integrating content with us, which Disney has nailed for a long time, is where I think Netflix is heading more and more aggressively. I think it's taken its time until now getting a center of excellence. So if we go back to, let's take the Disney model again. Disney started by making sure it had a center of excellence and its center of excellence was was animated movies. Before it touched theme parks, before it touched merchandising, it started with making sure it was producing again and again and again outstanding animated movies. And then it built an empire around that core capability. I think Netflix has been evolving its core capability from distributing in a digital format other people's content to now, its own development of its own content. And I think now that it's proven to itself it can do that in an excellent way, it'll continue to invest there, but now start pivoting to building out the bigger empire around it. So to, it's it's a model that I think has been done. I just think we haven't yet hit the point in Netflix's evolution where it was willing to, to start doing that. I think now it's willing to start doing it.
1: But the, the talk about a hard investment standpoint, figuring out when the right time to invest in a right. Netflix is. Right. Very challenging right. in the context of that evolution because we've seen the significant drawdown. We saw the the mania on the upside, and then the the, the depression on the downside. Right. Yeah. So this is always the challenge, I think, with with investing in anything, let alone tech companies in particular. That there's this this comfort level that the narrative that we believe in about the future yeah. is going to not only play out, but then be profitable in ways that we cannot see coming. And oftentimes, it's the opposite, and then everyone throws it out. You know, sells everything, and then maybe there's, there's a point where you buy into it, but how does anybody evaluate a, a longer term investment when you have these dynamics and we have these these interesting situations where a company kind of goes back to brick and mortar versus just digital I mean you, even Amazon right doing these these uh, these stores uh, you know uh, going back into the brick and mortar side you end up having kind of going back to to your point to these old models to get more profitability.
2: And interesting, Michael, as you were sort of saying, how do you know, when's the point to make, Let, let's take the stock that really has had this debate, I think, front and center, which is Tesla and EV, right? And Tesla, and then if you remember, Rivian came out and IPO did a massive price, Lucid went public bias back. EV, I think, is where we're seeing a real test of what I call faith around new technologies where we can all see in our mind's eye the vision and what this could be and how literally a new sector is being created in the same way that, you know, Netflix created a new sector. EV is this new sector that's been created. And then the question for us becomes, well, when do we start putting our money into it? And when do you have enough proof points to persuade you that the risk return is going to be palatable to you? And this is one I struggle with. I really do. And I look at something like Tesla and I know that this is hugely emotive for some people. I've had this debate on CNBC, Michael, and if you saw this, which is, do you put, do, would I put my money into Tesla today, given where it's valued today? Or would I put my money into Ford and General Motors, which are valued at a much, much lower level, but they've got big legacy businesses in the cash and they're really sprinting as hard as they can, given they're a, a different generation and, and DNA of company to, to take share in EV. And I've sort of said, well, I, right now I put my money in Ford and GM because I think on a relative basis, it's more attractive, at least to me, than Tesla is, and in so much of it is because you know, without without Elon Musk, I don't I, I don't think Tesla can can do what it is capable of doing under his leadership. There's real key man risk there. Where Netflix is interesting to me, Mike, is and why, like today, the next twenty four hours is so critical to start forming an opinion on this. When Netflix announced last earnings that they had lost net two million subscribers, I think was the number. We all sat there and said, Oh gosh, like that's that's a really big headline numbers. Well, what's the plan? And there was no plan. There was no plan to remediate, right? And there was lots of chatter around, well, on the one hand, is this the end of Netflix, is streaming dead, is the model broken? On the other hand, there were a set of believers out there in the analyst community that said, Well, wait a second, Netflix has proven that it can evolve. It disrupted itself. You know, Netflix started out as a DVD rental business and it went on to cannibalize its own core cool competency and do away with that part of its business to, to create digital streaming. So there is a school of thought that is Netflix is it the kind of beast that has proven it's willing to take massive risks, kill its old business model to create a new one that's even stronger. If you believe that, then maybe you say, well, I'm going to go into Netflix now and, and it's going to be there in the long run. I'm looking at this in the next 24 hours saying, "Okay, they've just signed an agreement with Microsoft to start ad supported streaming. At least they're doing something. Let's hear the details. Let's hear what it's got to say over the near term. In terms of having a plan, because we haven't heard one yet, and this is the moment where I'm going to start saying, Michael, do I hear something from this management team that's going to give me a little bit of faith?
1: Right, it kind of goes back to the start of the conversation that you want to find those companies that have survived through recessions, right, and fair markets, right. right, because you know Tesla really hasn't been tested either in that kind of a period. Which is, it's funny to me how how these narratives are not all you have to do just, is just zoom out on on the cycle with which these these trends started to realize that a lot of this is maybe just a function of cheap, easy money. And we don't know the true test of success, which is how high they bounce when they hit bottom. Whereas you can see that with companies like Ford and GM and, and, and companies of that sort. So I think it's, it's a valid way to, to think about things. Now, again, I want to go back to the name of the space. What, a, what if the bear market is over? So a bear market being over doesn't necessarily mean a recession is over. We know that, right? Mm-hmm. Recessions can have different time frames than, yeah. than market behavior here. But but from from your vantage point as somebody who's seen a lot of businesses and has been operational with a lot of companies that you're involved in as well, if we are maybe at the end of a public bear market, which you know is very debatable, and I know that's not a popular opinion right now, what would what would you t- turn your focus to? Right, coming, I'm I'm trying to get to a, a discussion around when a cycle in public markets is changing. Where do you want to consider putting some some more effort in in terms of research? What industries what types of companies what becomes interesting at a turn in a in a market environment like this
2: well in these moments i'm really looking at stocking up on high quality names that are going to set me up for long-term wealth creation and there are different appetites for this so what, what i've done michael just you know again this is an investment advice i can just share what i've been how i've been thinking about managing my own money is i want to make sure But I've got a building block, a foundation in my investment portfolio of really good, stable, blue chip companies that are going to see me through old age. That's what I want to start with, because anything beyond that is upside, it's gravy. And so at moments like this, bear market in the public domain, I'm really looking at companies like Walmart, or I'm looking at the health, you know, the, the pharmaceutical businesses. I'm looking at players that are scaled, that are more mature, that have got the dividend yields, so that I know that there is a portion of my portfolio that is as safe as I can define the word safe. When you've got, you know, public market stocks, and so I'm looking at those. So I've been spending a lot of time, again, looking at places like Walmart, looking at places like the J and J's of the world. I've been looking at some energy stocks just to try and get through this part of the cycle. Those are the kinds of businesses I'm looking at. Telecoms is another one. Infrastructure is another. Places that I feel have got longevity, real longevity, they're, n- they're not going to have likely the outsized returns that going into some of the more glamorous, high, higher revenue generating, not yet profitable names are. But at least I feel they're stable and they're going to go away. And then within that subset, Michael, I'm looking for ones where I'm seeing real investment in technology so that these are mature, stable businesses that know they need to get in front of the ball in terms of next-gen investments. So the reason I like Walmart, for example, is phenomenal store print, 150 Americans touch some part of Walmart every single week in inflationary environments when it's very difficult for margin to be preserved. They've got the scale to be able to do I think, a better job than others. But there's other stuff that Walmart is doing to invest in the future beyond the stable base. It's investing, for example, in its data collection capabilities. So all of you folks, and including me, who go and shop at Walmart, they're collecting your data in the same way that Amazon Prime is collecting data. And they're using that information to figure out the next gen of product suites they want to come up with, or they're selling some of that data insights to third party brands to try and create new revenue streams. This business was Walmart Walmart Connect. It was very small. It's been growing over time. So I like the stability there, but I like the fact that they're trying to do this kind of tech savvy forward thinking. They're doing stuff in FinTech. They're doing things with Canoe for EV delivery. That's the kind of business I like. I'm looking at pharmaceutical companies where there's a stable set of cash flows coming out where there is a willingness to go and either buy into new product lines or to continue to invest into into other areas and adjacencies to their core capabilities. Once I've done that, Michael, and only once I've got those in place, am I looking now at getting into things like the Warner Music that I talked about, which feels a little more speculative, but I do think the story, and particularly around Universal Music, gets more interesting over time. I'm now looking at back places where I've been absolutely crushed like Roblox and saying, oh, now is this the time where I bring down the average cost of my position? Because I still think it's the long-term go-to platform in gain for the younger generation. And yes, I've had these losses, but do I start bringing down my average position basis by going and nibbling away at some of these pieces now? So that's how I'm thinking about the bear market. It's doubling down. It's trying to find value. It's finding more cheaply the stuff that I've wanted to be in for my long-term future. But also taking, with that foundation in place, the chance to maybe roll the dice a little bit more speculatively, but in a much smaller scale relative to the stable
1: stuff. Is it fair to say that you think that for those that are investing in public markets and in stocks that they should have more of a more of a mindset like a private equity investor, like private <laughs> equity? Because yeah. really the commonality there is time frame, yeah. right? But 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 I'm just I'm just curious because yeah, you 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 are on both sides of of, yeah. of that. Discussion, right? Uh, are there what? What are the, the similarities? What should one take from the private equity mindset to the public markets?
2: The, the key thing on the the key thing, irrespective of time frame, that sits on the private side a lot more is this hardcore focus on cash, 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 cash. And again, this isn't venture capital. This is the more the growthier and more mature business. You know, one thing I'm going to say out loud, Michael, that, that that doesn't get much coverage at all. Public companies go bankrupt. Right? We've seen some file recently the bankruptcy. You know, we've seen code sort of Revlon file for, for bankruptcy. We've seen a couple of, of the more glamorous companies that went public via SPAC say very clearly, we're running out of cash. And we don't think we're going to be able to raise more in this environment, which means they're going to file for bankruptcy. If there's one thing that private equity fears more than anything else, and again, this is the more mature businesses, it's bankruptcy. You live to generate returns for your investors. But unlike venture capital, there's no forgiveness. For delivering zero of that original capital back. You're in there to preserve capital first and foremost. And by doing that, you have to focus on downside risk. What is the downside risk for the business model? What are the mitigating factors? Is this a to mitigate that risk? Are there sufficient different ways you can grow that mean that you can offset the risk that one piece of your business goes sideways? I'll give you an example. A lot of companies that went public over the last 24 to 36 months and are now struggling were single product companies. A firm, let's go back to buy our pay later, not to pick on a firm. I love that they innovated, but it was a single product. Zoom, single product. DocuSign, single product. Peloton, single product. Yes, these all went to try to diversify, but they couldn't do it quickly enough. And they're in the position they're in now. One of the things private equity training teaches you is, a product is not an enterprise. And if you've got an enterprise that's going to be successful, it's got to have multiple levers to pull to grow and multiple multiple levers through which to contain costs when a recession comes. And so I would take that perspective to the private market, and looking at stocks and saying, is, these, is this a company that is an enterprise, not a product? And does it have a plan that grows revenue in, in several ways, focused, but there are lots of options available to them and can it manage the cost base down when it goes through a down cycle in multiple ways? If it can't do, do those two things, it's not a fundamental building block stock to me right now.
1: I, I love that line. A product is not an enterprise. It's like a it's like a feature, it's not a business model, right? That's right. That, that's, it's a widget. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Ann Barry here on Twitter, and uh, obviously pay attention when she's doing her media rounds. I certainly appreciate those that joined here. And first time you and I are talking again, I appreciate your time here with us. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your day.
3: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.